G'day Footyology listeners, Roko here. Enjoy our podcast? Well, you can become an official Footyology podcast supporter simply by using the supporter feature through ACAST. There's no subscription or regular commitment, just the sheer satisfaction that comes with knowing you've kept the debt collectors from our door. No, just kidding. It does help though. If you want to get started, you just need to follow the support this show link in the show description. Thanks again. And now let's get on with it. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast with Rowan Connolly and Mark Fine. G'day, everyone. Welcome to the Footyology Podcast. This is the Round 21 Preview Edition. Just three games left now in the home and away season. Finals just around the corner. We're continuing to negotiate the COVID pandemic and all the logistical complications of that. And uh, we're soldiering on, as we do every week, with a preview and review edition. This one's the preview. Nine juicy games to analyse in full detail. Plenty of news to discuss and a couple of fantastic footy flashbacks. This podcast always proudly brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punning advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. As I say, a very good morning to my co-host, Mark Fine. How are you travelling in your 2021 football season marathon, Finey? Well, of course, it's now being joined in terms of my sporting interest with the Olympics. I know you're not heavily invested, but that's certainly taken a fair bit of, of a chunk out of my day. Nevertheless, well, I look at footy as a wide-open gold medal for four or five teams. I've probably got it down to four teams. And I'll tell you what, I've seen at the Olympics some joy on the faces of recipients of silver or bronze. I can tell you that doesn't happen in the AFL. It's gold or nothing. And, yeah, I'll tell you this much. I think we might have a Victorian team on the dice. Oh, yeah. Well, I think that's looking increasingly likely, isn't it? I'll tell you what else. There is no semis or finals or, or anything really in terms of the gold medal for hamburgers because that is in perpetuity. We know who won it, who maintains it, and where it will always be, Finey. Who and what am I talking about? Andrew's Hamburgers. 82nd year in operation. That's a long time. That covers a lot of Olympics, a lot of footballs, but more importantly... Millions of hamburgers, and they are just a great bite every time. Look, you don't survive in the cutthroat world of takeaway food if you're not absolutely at the top of your game always. They're only as good as their next burger, which is magnificent. I know because I'm looking forward to my next bite. 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, consistently brilliant. That's what makes a legend. And Nick Spartels and the team at West Point Properties, they have continued to renovate and build over the last two years. Well, COVID has changed our lives. Why don't you change your life for the better? Treat yourself. Live in luxury. West Point Properties. And the gold medal for statistics every week, not just every four years, surely goes to another one of our great partners, Stats Insider, a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis for more than 15 sports across the world. 
Stats Insider simulates an event 10,000 times to best understand both the range of possible outcomes and the probability of each result. Along with their famed pre-match and in-game projections, Stats Insider is also known for their full season projections, which currently have a fierce three-way battle for premiership favouritism with the Victorian team's dominant, as you suggest, Viney, Geelong, Melbourne and the Western Bulldogs, all split by just 2.1%. Port Adelaide are fourth favourites to win the flag in 12.1% of Stats Insider's simulations. Stats Insider also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. In fact, I pinned a column for them this week. Check it out because it's all free to use on the site at statsinsider.com.au. Give them a follow on Twitter at Stats Insider while you're at it. All right, we've got a heap to get through. Let's get into it. On Footyology, Newsfeed. All right, well, the biggest story with football consequences this week has to be the suspension of Melbourne skipper Jack Viney for serious misconduct after what was a marathon AFL tribunal hearing Viney referred directly to the tribunal uh, for a pretty ordinary act. Let's not beat around the bush here. Pinning uh, Gold Coast Sam Collins to the ground with his elbow to the neck and throat region. Uh, It emerged sort of after a lot of the scrutiny of the weekend's games. Um, Two games, yeah, I don't know. I've I've got some major issues with this, Finey, and it goes back to our discussion on Buddy Franklin last week, who was initially handed one week and then had that overturned for a misconduct charge, a flinging elbow. Uh, to his Fremantle opponent, Luke Ryan. This one's worse, um, so hence the two games. But uh, interested to hear your thoughts. Mine are just what I keep repeating, but I'm getting a bit sick of having to do so, that if we've got a game that's serious about eliminating unnecessary violence and we want to protect what happens in a game of football and eliminate cheap shots, these are the sort of things that need to be stamped out really uh, heavily and um, without mucking around. And I don't think two games from that point of view is enough. I just cannot get over the absolute anomaly of the fact that players can and do get handed greater suspensions for bumps and tackles. We've seen guys get three, four weeks for bumps and tackles gone wrong, which nonetheless are legitimate acts of play where they made a misjudgment. Who can possibly argue that someone flinging an elbow back, or in this case, pinning someone to the ground with your elbow to a very delicate region of the body, which, you know, let's not beat around the bush, you could actually kill someone with if you wanted to. How can that only be worth two weeks unless what anyone gets, even for a badly executed bump or tackle? This is a major philosophical uh, debate that if the AFL is serious, will address by revisiting their scale of charges and making sure that what can never be argued to be a legitimate football act is treated appropriately. How do you see it? Well, that's certainly a common sense, I think, stance to have that non-football acts 
needed to be need to be separated from football. That's there will still be grey area, because Buddy Franklin the week before, the flinging elbow backwards through a tackle, being performed on him, is that a football act or not a football act? So it won't be black and white, Rowan. Just I, I do agree though that non-football acts need to be dealt with and severely and with the intent to have them not part of the game. So here's my issue, and that is it's quite clear that the AFL do not see themselves as custodians of the game as played beyond the AFL. They don't, by these suspensions handed out, they don't feel as though they need to send a message to footballers at all levels, boys, girls, men, women, as to what is the right and wrong way to play the game. They continue to adhere, it seems to be, to an ongoing policy of consequence being the overriding um, metre in deciding how long a player is suspended for. Because, of course, in both the incidents, Buddy Franklin's incident and in the incident with Jack Viney, the victims were, uh, didn't suffer any long-term injuries, thankfully. You and I both believe that that is wrong. Now, in terms of consistency throughout the AFL season, if Buddy Franklin got no weeks, then I think Jack Viney's two weeks is about right. But the AFL need to revisit this at the end of the season, as you said, to stamp out non-football acts, and I add, to be a send a message and to be the example setter, because it, it is the competition that is viewed nationally and set the right example for all footballers must be reviewed at the end of the season, Rowan. Yeah, look, I I couldn't agree more. I mean, the whole slant of consequence versus intent has has slipped out of of whack and uh, it's happened over a period of years and I I don't think it's been deliberate, but it sort of indicates to me a, um, a league that is more worried about potential legal ramifications and thus needs to punish appropriately where the consequences of an act are severe without being worried enough about the message being sent. And that's what you just alluded to. But uh, I think most of us, most football fans seem to agree on this one too. It just seems bizarre to me that in the various sort of uh, tweakings of the whole judiciary system, the AFL never sort of sits back, has a look at the big picture, and rather than worrying about classifications of, of this act or that act, never sort of sits back and goes, well, okay, these are two different acts, but one guy got one week here for something that is absolutely a cheap shot, and this guy got three times that for uh, something that we've been taught to do in the act of learning about football. So, look, it's wrong. Uh, you know, two games. I, I take your point about um, the penalty and overturned penalty of Franklin. But uh, I think a lot of us agree that this needs some work in the off-season. All and right. Rowan, just, I just want to add very quickly, the problem starts not only with the match review officer, in many cases it starts before then in the commentary box. And we have spoken about the unwillingness of former players when viewing incidents like this to actually say that this is a serious incident that needs weeks of uh, suspension because the old boys club 
amongst past players and current players sort of kicks in. And yeah, theoretically, they're all tough. But when you actually put a name and a face to the act, they suddenly back down and invariably call for the player to be let off. And I think that starts the whole thing off on the wrong foot. Yeah, no, agreed. Um, all right, uh, while we're talking about unsavoury acts and uh, we should say alleged at this stage, but uh, some pretty ordinary news about uh, Adelaide veteran Taylor Tex Walker finally fill us in about what happened there. Yes, he was attending a an Adelaide Reserves game. They play in the Sandford. They were playing North Adelaide. This is in July and he addressed the players at three-quarter time now, this, again, is alleged and the actual uh, what was said has not, of course, is, is irrelevant. But apparently, in talking to Matt Crouch, he racially vilified North Adelaide player, former St Kilda player, played a couple of games for the Saints, Robbie Young. Now, this was overheard by an official who uh, reported it back to the Adelaide Football Club, who have responsibly now handed it on to the AFL. Again, alleged, and we wait for the investigation to be complete to understand more about the incident. But again, these things are not to be swept under the carpet. Again, in theory, everybody wants to stamp out racial vilification. But when we put a name to the act, invariably it gets diluted, I feel, and people will say... I'm not saying in the case of Tex Walker, but people will say, oh, this player, he's played with Indigenous players all his life. He's got no problems. He's a great friend of the community, et cetera, et cetera. That doesn't... It, again, not in this incident, but we need to really, as a nation, address this head-on because it is intrinsic. It's endemic in Australian society, and it is so often forgiven by saying, oh, it's just a slip of the tongue. No, he doesn't mean that he or she is you know they've got great friends and you know some of my best friends are so so you know dot 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 enough is enough honestly we have to be a nation that understands that somewhere not too deep in the psyche and in the makeup of many Australians is the ability to be racist the, yeah, the I, tendency I, to be racist. Yeah, no, no doubt about that. Uh, I, I think it's, you know, it's sort of like we've got from stage one to stage two. Stage two is where everyone universally condemns overt racism uttered actually to a subject of the taunting, uh, but which will still even subconsciously think that uh, if it's not overt, if it's casual racism or if it's, something that uh, isn't said directly to the intended target, uh, it's not that big a deal. And, and this is the hard part, isn't it? It's about changing attitudes. So we've got to a stage where even uh, yeah, full-on racists realise you can't just say what you like to someone, but they'll still think it's okay to think it. How you change that? Well, I've got to say, uh, over the last few years and some of the things that have gone on and even spilling into another arena here, some of the attitudes being propagated, not just in the public, but in the media about COVID and vaccines and et cetera. I just despair that we're ever going to get there, to be honest. So uh, it's certainly not a great look for a guy who should be a bit of a role model for younger people. Um, 
and uh, it's it's going to be interesting to see what applies. But uh, you know, if usual practice applies, it'll be a bit of counselling and a slap on the wrist and a fine, and everyone will forget about it in five seconds. So, not overly uh, optimistic that that will be resolved to anyone's great satisfaction. Um, all right, we should talk. Uh, there's been a clutch of retirements just over the last couple of days. And they're interesting because they're three players that don't sort of leap immediately to mind, but all have very interesting stories and uh, have all tackled real adversity. So uh, I want to start with perhaps the least known of this trio. And it's in fact, funnily enough, a premiership player, West Coast 2018 premiership side member, Daniel Venables. Now that grand final um, was one of just 21 games he ended up playing in his career. But this is a really sad story. Venables is just 22 years old, very gifted player. The Eagles had huge wraps on, was a, a long-term part of their planning. Uh, not long after that grand final triumph at all, in fact, round nine, I think it was, 2019, he copped a very, very heavy head knock. Um didn't play subsequently. So it's now been over two years. He has repeatedly suffered the impacts of uh, post-concussion, still dealing with those symptoms. And in fact, when he announced his retirement the other day, uh, it was almost a relief because he now has the time to be able to devote to his recovery. But uh, certainly finding a reminder that um, football can be a dangerous sport to play. Very dangerous, and yeah, I wonder whether we've heard the last of exactly what this has done to young Venables, and it's it's uh, very unfortunate because he is a player who, in the era of known that the AFL has known about the effects of concussion trauma, he is a victim that, under all the or most of the current protocols still has had his life impacted upon. Watch this space. All right. The second retirement um, <clears throat> and another sad tale, really, but also, on the other hand, uh, an uplifting tale because um, he's been symbolic, I, I guess, of the game finding popularity among communities other than the Anglo-Saxon one that uh, has resided here for generations and generations. I'm speaking about Lynn Jong, who has announced his retirement uh, from the Western Bulldogs. Ten seasons uh, Jong played for the Doggies, but there haven't been too many players that have been more beset by injury issues than he ended up with just 65 games for that 10 years of toil. I saw his retirement announcement to his teammates. Um, very uh, uplifting stuff, but uh, a great story, Lin Jong, and uh, very unfortunate to have missed out on that 2016 flag because he was a regular part of that side that season. That was his most prolific season and, of course, uh, busted a collarbone in the elimination final win over West Coast. Tried very hard to get back, but couldn't bus back into that 22, which won that famous flag. So a bit of a sad farewell, but also uh, a tribute to persistence on the part of Lin Jong fighting. 
Yeah, look, Ling Jong, interesting story, Taiwanese background. So, again, uh, just adding to the vast number of uh, different nations that have provided players or parentage of players who've embraced AFL football and gone on to play at the highest level. Interesting player, Ling Jong, sneaky tall, uh, so could fill a number of different positions. And at his best, very good overhead. Look, a really tough player to match up on. Unfortunately, we saw precious little of his best, but at his best could mark, could certainly run, had some pace. And I remember earlier on in his career when he was just sort of breaking through and it was quite clear that he had a lot of ability. Remember Collingwood made a play for him and the Western Bulldogs hung on to their man and we have been very loyal to him, given him every chance back on the rookie list this year. And just so sad. Got a game and just, again, body couldn't stand up to it. So initially a lot of collarbone problems and then soft tissue injuries putting pay to his career. Yeah, I did quite a big interview with him uh, for The Age back in 2015. And I, I remember, you know, he was a player reborn under the auspices of Luke Beveridge. And um, Luke Beveridge loved him. So uh, just a pity that that's when his body sort of started to give way because he would have become a pretty important part of that 22, I think, luck uh, permitting. And the final retirement in this three we're talking about and this guy did end up putting together a long and, in the end, pretty durable career. Never one of the superstars, but uh, at his best, quite damaging. Chris Main with Fremantle and Collingwood, 172 games for the Dockers, 73 with the Pies, 245 in total. And I think people would remember that um, he went to Collingwood and that first season there, 2017, was a pretty miserable one for him. He uh, couldn't get a game. He had injuries. He was basically um, put on the market or, or basically had revealed publicly that his coach, Nathan Buckley, didn't really want him as part of the deal. Uh, Going to be pretty hard for him to come back from there, but he did. And he became an important player for the Pies in that 2018 campaign when they so nearly grabbed the premiership. He's a terrific guy. He's a guy that, uh, what's well, been chronicled now, does a fair bit of welfare work outside the game with kids um, and uh, universally liked by his teammates. And uh, Congratulations to Chris Main on a, a pretty successful career overall, wouldn't you say? Yeah, sort of your archetypal third forward. So not necessarily a prime figure in a football team. Collingwood also used him back of centre on the ball. They made him a more versatile footballer. The sort of guy you'd probably describe as in your bottom six for much of his career. But if he's in your bottom six, you've got a pretty good team. So a real survivor and got the most out of his natural gifts. And as you said, highly regarded as a person. And I'm sure will continue in football or at least use football in what he does afterwards, working with uh, people in the community who are less fortunate than most. Well, well done to all those three players, plaudits, well-deserved. All right, we're going to wrap up this new segment with, uh, well, it's another disappointing thing to talk about in a way, I think. Um, it is, and that's with all 
due respect to the person who has got the gig, but Nick Del Sando being appointed St Kilda's AFLW coach for the upcoming season, which means that uh, among the entire competition, not one single female coach, even of an AFLW side. And I think what's becoming more apparent and certainly has been the trend with those appointments in recent times, it's being used as a stepping stone to an AFL men's coaching career. We've seen other clubs doing it. Now, I like Nick Del Santo a lot. I think he's a good analyst of the game. But surely if the AFL is serious about uh, not just promoting women's football in a tokenistic sense, but actually creating pathways for women in the game, not just as players. And it's just had uh, a month where it's celebrated uh, women in football and coaching particularly to then happily oversee a competition where you don't have a single female coach of female football sides is just fundamentally wrong finding. And I can tell you that, uh, you know, some of the, key figures in the AFLW uh, ranks and movement of women's football more generally are livid about this because it's just further evidence that what they claim is sort of institutionalised sexism continues. I couldn't disagree more. Every club has the right to appoint the person that they believe is the best fit for the job. Now, Peter Searle was the coach at St Kilda and Peter Searle fantastically highly regarded. Of course, St Kilda appointed her as part of their senior coaching panel prior to the AFLW for their AFL team. And she has stepped back from her commitments because she's got a young family and feels that she needs to devote time there. The disappointing aspect of that is that there's not enough financial reward four coaches in the AFLW to make that full-time commitment worthwhile, male or female. But I believe the evolution of the women's game will see many female coaches in the not-too-distant future, but it's sort of understandable that in the first few years of this sport being elevated to the national level with some obviously serious generation of talent and female football um, and female football input that has made the AFLW look there's a vast body of players is what I'm trying to say and they will produce coaches but I'm not surprised that in the early years that we don't have a lot of female coaches all I say is it's a natural evolution and best person for the job let's work on a meritocracy here Rowan and okay, well, you're talking about a guy that hasn't coached up against well, female hang on, hang candidates who have. He's been at St Kilda as development coach and heads up the Junior Pathways Father-Son program. So he has been involved at Okay, St. what about a candidate like... All right, let me throw this one up at you. Well, hang on, hang on. I don't care who the candidates are. Every no, club has the right on. to choose their best person. Yeah, no, you're not stacking up here. Sorry. Beck Why Goddard. Not? Beck Goddard coached Adelaide to the first AFLW premiership. She was then replaced as coach. How can you talk about it? Take that up with Adelaide. Let me finish. How can you talk about a meritocracy when women aren't being given those opportunities? Now, you say the early years. We've had five seasons of AFLW. 
women's football has been going a long time. I would argue that there are female candidates for this job who are eminently more qualified than Nick Del Santo, and they've gone for a recognisable name who is a popular person around that club. You cannot seriously tell me that St Kilda are uh, reticent in appointing a female coach or in any way have chosen this as a bias against females. The same club that appointed a female coach to their senior men's coaching list. And how did that work out? Well, she went on to become a, a, a highly respected coach of an AFLW team and it yeah, worked out fine. Have a chat to people about how her time at St Kilda went. Are you saying that she's dissatisfied with her time at St Kilda? Absolutely. And that's why she left St Kilda? Yep. Okay, well, then she should have made that public because the official public statement was that she was spending more time with her family and publicly thanked the St Kilda Football Club for the wonderful opportunities and time she's had at the club, both with men and senior, senior men and women's teams. I mean, the fact that Beck Goddard was an AFLW premiership coach in her first year and was replaced says it all to me. She was seen by some people as difficult, a difficult person to work with. She's a premiership coach. That would never happen if her name was Barry Goddard. She would still be in that position. Well, again, that's something that the Adelaide Football Club, they should address that with the Adelaide Football Club. But I still believe that every club has the right to choose the person that they believe is the best fit. And if there are any clubs out there that have a policy intentional or unintended that is biased against any group, but particularly in this case against your suggesting against women, then that club needs to be publicly censured and the AFL needs to step in. But you can't have it both ways. If they're always going to, it's fine to say they have the right to choose. Whilst AFL clubs are controlled by the people that control them now, uh, and we, we, you yourself talk about the boys' club, those positions are always going to be filled by people who are they, they are more instinctively close to than female candidates. Personally, so you're suggesting at Richmond a club that has a female president that they intrinsically and instinctively would not choose a female coach. Yep. Because it's about the on field and there's still this belief that the girls don't know quite as much as the boys because they haven't played at that level. Okay. Well, I disagree. Okay, I know you disagree. Well, we have a vigorous debate about it. Yep. Uh, anyway, that is the new segment with a bit of opinion thrown in. Um, we've got nine games to preview, so let's get stuck into them. On Footyology, wrap around. Round 21 kicks off on Friday evening at GMHBA Stadium with Geelong taking on GWS. And Palmerbet are saying the head-to-head odds in this one, pretty lopsided. The Cats, raging hot favourites, paying just $1.12. You can get $6.40. On the Giants, pretty generous considering their ability, at least. Stats Insider tell us that Chris Scott has coached against 43 different men in his 10-year career, yet has a less than 65% winning record against only seven, one of whom, interestingly, is Leon Cameron. And in fact, Leon Cameron's Giants did beat Geelong 
down at the Cattery a few years back. I remember that. According to the Stats Insider Futures model, the Giants are still an 18% chance of playing finals, yet are up against the Premiership favourites here and on a ground where they've won just once in their five visits. Uh, are we looking at changes that will make them stronger and give them a better chance of causing that massive upset finding? And what's happening with the Cats in selection terms? Yeah, we're certainly looking at changes for GWS, but not ones that will make them stronger because uh, obviously last week they've, and this is a real blow for them, especially in a vital game like this, they are definitely going to lose Hopper and Phil Davis, both with concussion protocol. I don't know if you remember, Hopper tried to smother a ball and got an accidental boot in the face, and that sees him unavailable this week. So they're both out. And DeBoer should come into the side. Maybe Adam Kennedy, who had to wait a long time because of injury to play this season and actually played really well. Missed last week with a minor hamstring injury. He's a small chance for a turn. Whereas the Cats welcome back Henderson and Atkins. And uh, who's going to make way? Unfortunately, sort of the usual suspects for Geelong, it is hard to hold a spot in that team for some of these players. So certainly Kruger, who managed to force his way in the team, likely to miss out. And they might rest somebody like a, a Zach Tui as we approach the finals. Look, Geelong are on a mission, and that is a pretty big mission to win the flag that has eluded them for a decade. And with Richmond basically out of the running, as good as, they are a huge chance and they're not going to fluff their lines down at G and HBA against GWS, I don't think. I expect the Giants, with a spot in the eight, definitely in their own hands, to give it a mighty good shot. But that loss of Phil Davis, GWS have been all the better for his reliability and ability on the back line. Well, Hawkins hasn't really had a great fortnight or so, but he's had a great season and he loves playing down there. He's going to be hard to hold back, isn't he? I expect him to have a big say. Radigalia adds to the problems height-wise down the back for the Giants. And, yeah, I expect a plucky performance by them, but too hard. To go to GMHBA and beat the Cats, not this year, Giants, I'd tip Geelong by 19 points. Uh, I concur. I, look, Geelong... You know they're not um, they're not the excitement machine of the competition this year. There's no question about that. They play a very measured, patient, and at times, frankly, boring to watch game style. But uh, gee, it's effective. And the Giants, they are the yo-yo team of 2021. I reckon you just cannot rely on them to show any consistency at all. In fact, since losing their first three games of this season, they haven't gone more than two weeks uh, of wins or losses. In fact, since I'll read it to you, their form line since those first three losses, it's win, win, loss, win, win, loss, win, loss, draw, win, loss, win, loss, loss, win, loss. Uh, that last one, of course, to Port Adelaide last week in which they were outgunned for the best part, uh, reasonable the week before against Essendon, but... You need a, a more compelling form line than that if you're going to upset Geelong at Geelong, I would argue. Can't see it happening. They've only got the one win down there from those five visits. 
they're not going to make it to this time. Too much at stake for the Cats, and that'll just about be good night, Nurse, for the Giants, who uh, have a couple of, uh, or at least one tough game to come after this one. They've got Richmond the following week, Carlton to finish up. Uh, but I think this is the one where we uh, just about kiss them goodbye as a finals chance. I'm going for the Cats to win by 28 points. All right, that's Friday evening. Let's move to Saturday. Saturday afternoon, Marvel Stadium, 1.45pm. It is Carlton taking on Gold Coast. Uh, amazingly, some would suggest the Blues still a finals chance, one of a clutch of four teams, each on eight wins, a game outside the eight. Can they continue what would be a very unlikely assault on a finals berth? Well, Palmer Bet saying that they're certainly pretty strong favourites. They are paying $1.26 on the head-to-heads. Uh, Gold Coast, you can get $3.90. Probably lucky to be even that short after another insipid performance from them at the same venue last week. Stats Insider say the Blues are still alive and just a game out of the eight and are now a 22.7% chance of playing finals for the first time since 2013. As for the Suns, their 30 total points was their fifth lowest score in their history last week, and they've now conceded 60 scoring shots over their last six quarters and have been outscored by a massive 174 points in that small time frame. So... For all the gains we talked about the making, uh, they have just slipped back again. This is a club which has some major issues. They just cannot ever string consistent form together. Uh, anyone they can turn to in the hopes of at least a more competitive performance this week, Finey, and what about the Blues? Yeah, look, Gold Coast will welcome back Brandon Ellis after hamstring injury, and he's been a very good player for them since crossing from the Tigers, the Premiership Tiger, he'll come back into the side. And Sam Day, now, I don't know if you know what happened to the Gold Coast in the VFL, but they only played a quarter of an hour and then the game was cancelled because that's when the announcement re lockdown in Queensland was made and the game was quickly called off and players hurried away to their homes to lock down. So, unfortunately for Sam Day, he needed the run, but I reckon they might play him because Zach Smith, backup ruckman last year, surely at the Gold Coast, returning there after a stint to the Cats. No, not for mine. And Jack Bowes struggled as well. So did many of them. So a couple of changes there. Carlton don't have a ruckman. Tom DeConning unavailable. And they'll probably have to turn to Mitch McGovern. Somebody will have to go around in the ruck. Luckily, they're playing the Gold Coast, who are also ruck bereft. Maybe Sohani stays in the ruck. And if Betts is right to return, Owies, who hasn't had a lot of the ball in recent weeks, might make way. Carlton are very good against St Kilda, the same venue. And with, funnily enough, they went into that game seemingly with no hope of making the eight. St Kilda were the side with the incentive. But now, the way the games have panned out and the results, Carlton are back in the frame. So let's see how they go with the added responsibility or the added incentive of a spot in the eight, because it has seemed to be a poison chalice that even a chance of playing finals has been enough to put most teams off their tucker. Carlton, with, I guess, last week, 
nothing to lose, played beautifully. Now with something to gain, they don't have a great reputation of fulfilling that contract. So a bit more difficult. But Harry Mackay stands ominously. We know that Carlton are wrapped to see Charlie Kerno in the team. He'll only improve over the next couple of weeks, but don't expect too much from him. The beauty is that Walsh is playing brilliantly. Cripps almost is a luxury now. Can you believe that? Cripps is former luxury. With those sort of uh, players, and I really believe they've got the two best young footballers in the competition. They're exciting times, therefore, at Carlton. Walsh and Mackay, they would be on the top of any other team shopping list. Carlton, for mine, by 33. Yeah, I think it's got to be the Blues. You know, talking about Gold Coast inconsistency, um, this venue is a good representation of that, of course, smashed by 98 points against Melbourne last week. Their previous visit to Marvel Stadium, and they've played there three times this year, was uh, arguably the best win in their history, and that was that 10-point win over Richmond in round 16. So... Uh, what what will uh, the third visit there in a matter of a month or so uh, offer? Who knows with the Suns, but I think it's trending badly. I like the way the Blues went about it last week, to quote Luke Darcy. I thought that was pretty handy. They've won four of their last six now and um, seem to be getting it together for David Teague. Still a bit questionable defensively, but their offense, when they're switched on, is pretty handy. Certainly good enough to deal with a side that seems to maybe have just about checked out for this season. So I'm going for the Blues pretty comfortably here. Uh, Let's say 36 points. All right, that is the first game on Saturday. Let's move to the second. Twilight on Saturday at the MCG, 4.35pm sees Richmond taking on North Melbourne. Uh, North, of course, have made some reasonable gains in the second half of this season. Richmond has now lost six of its last seven matches, but somehow is still a contender for the top eight. And if you have a look at their run home, you could argue they are still probably more than likely to actually end up inside the eight. Seems no one particularly wants the last two final spots this season. Palmerbet. Uh, telling us that the Tigers will start favourite, paying $1.45 on the head-to-heads. North Melbourne, you can get $2.78 there. Stats Insider say that Richmond hasn't beaten North on the MCG in 16 years. That's an interesting stat. And while these two rarely play at the G, Richmond have failed to beat the Roos at the G in the last five meetings between the two sides. Despite Richmond's poor form, the Stats Insider Futures model is still keeping the light on them and has them as a 32.9% chance of playing finals. Just for the record, after this game, they've got GWS and they've got Hawthorne in the final round. So there's an argument their run home is easier than just about all their competitors. Uh, It's been a tale of woe at the injury uh, front this year for the Tigers, finally, can they get anyone else back and have they lost anyone else? Well, you know, they're race, racing against time, the likes of Loston, McIntosh, Hawley, but they're not yet ready to return. The good news is that Nathan Broad, Syndesmosis, should be able to return to the side, but that's about it. Who does he come in for? The obvious replacement 
is, or the obvious person to miss out, is Garthwaite. Jake Arts, he hasn't touched the ball much in the last two or three weeks. I know you're a big fan of his. He's had a good season. He might be under pressure from young Ralph Smith, who played well in the VFL and kicked three goals last week. Watch his space. North Melbourne, uh, they are playing pretty good football and they welcome back two key players. Taron Thomas couldn't play last week because of concussion and his arc is upwards and upwards. And I think now being recognised as the bright face of North Melbourne's bright future. And Cam Zerha, well, he is... Is he talismanic? Is he the barometer? He's something because when he plays, things happen. Richmond go into this game warm favourites, but I don't agree. Look, North Melbourne's form's been fantastic, and I think that they will be buoyed by the return of those two players. In fact, it's not obvious to see who's going to miss out. So consistent has the form of most of their players been. Can they beat the Tigers? Look, I believe they can. Richmond, yes, if they win their remaining games, they will make the eight. That would normally be a strong driver for a football team, but when you've played... Won three of the last four premierships. I don't know whether the drive is that great to sneak into the eight. No, I think North Melbourne, with the return of Zerhar and Thomas, with the form of the likes of Lucas Davis Uniaki, Davies Uniaki, Goldstein, and a backline that's holding up, even without Cunnington, can cause the upset for mine, North Melbourne by 11. All right. Uh, yeah, not necessarily that brave a call, um, given the way both sides have been playing. Uh, Richmond against Freo last week, uh, like their opponent, couldn't hit the side of a barn. So that's certainly one area they'll have to tidy up. There are a couple of positives. Sydney Stack is a player that seems to be coming back into some decent form for the Tigers. Uh, I've given up on them as a flag chance, but I certainly think they can make the eight. In fact, I ran through the remaining fixtures yesterday and I had the Tigers finishing in seventh spot above West Coast, which sounds bizarre, but they have to win this game and the other two. I think they'll do that. I think they're good enough to win it. Now, just on that Stats Insider stat about uh, these two playing at the MCG, it's quite remarkable. The last clash between these two teams at the G was, in fact, North Melbourne's win in the 19, 19, 2015 elimination final. North Melbourne's last appearance at the MCG, finally, was two and a half years ago. It was in round three of 2019. That is a Melbourne-based team, which nominally... Uh, has had the MCG as a home ground over the years. They last played at the G in round three of 2019. So familiarity might be a bit of an issue there. Now, look, Tigers still got plenty to play for. Um, I think they're going to get the job done this time, hopefully with a bit more accurate kicking. Not by a lot, but I'm going for the Tigers by 12 points. Uh, Let's move to Saturday evening. There's going to be a showdown. I did this last time, Fanny, so I thought I'd give you a repeat performance. That is the Johnny's showdown. And I'm talking, of course, of the game between those arch rivals in Adelaide town, Port Adelaide 
and the Crows. They meet at Adelaide Oval, 7.40pm Eastern Standard Time. What's going to happen on this occasion? Well, Palmer Bet, understandably, have Port Adelaide a raging favourite, paying just $1.14 on the head-to-heads. Adelaide, you can get $5.80 on the Crows. Stats Insider say, time for our favourite statistical reminder and which pertains to Port Adelaide having now won 19 straight games against bottom eight opponents. And they shouldn't have much trouble here against the Crows side in free fall and which probably would prefer to stay that way and perhaps get the number two pick at the draft. The Crows have the second worst defence in the league and have conceded at least 23 scoring shots in 15 of their 19 games this season. Uh, Their earlier meeting this year tipped the ledger for the first time in a while, Port Adelaide's way in the head-to-head showdown record, which now reads 25 to the power and 24 to the Crows. Always uh, a big clash this in terms of pride. Uh, what's happening at selection for either team, Finey? Well, I've got a first for you, Rowan. For the first time this season, I'm tipping both teams to go in unchanged. And, of course, that means status quo remains, which means Port Adelaide are the better team. I don't really need to go too deep into this game. It's always, of course a little bit of a risk going with the obvious form in a showdown or a derby. But on this occasion, this close to the end of the season, with really their their season's pretty much set in terms of Port Adelaide gearing up for the finals and they're just quietly hanging on to that top four spot. Better football will be required, but not to beat Adelaide, whose season, brave as it has been, is coming to an end that was more predictable than the beginning. In other words, losing more than they're winning. So Port for mine, I don't need to go too deep player for player. You'll see why they're the better side. The latter says they're going to win by 49 points, and so do I. Form certainly suggests that. And and in fact, it'll be interesting how Adelaide views their own season because I reckon that first month of this season when they surprised everyone, it's become... A bit of a crutch, to be perfectly honest. In fact, strip that away, and they have lost 12 of their last 15 games. And last week against the Bulldogs in Ballarat, pretty representative of that. Uh, never really looked likely to win uh, with that strong breeze at play. Did beat Hawthorne the week before, but uh, prior to that, a 63-point loss to uh, West Coast. A sorry, 42 point loss to West Coast, 63 point loss to Essendon, 52 point loss to Brisbane. So, uh, those last four defeats by minimum 42 points, they haven't exactly been overly competitive. And as Stats Insider points out, no, no, we're not suggesting anyone's tanking, but uh, certainly probably more to be gained by an earlier draft pick than by ultimately a meaningless win, even, albeit in a showdown, they'd, I guess, like to get uh, that head-to-head record back all square rather than being in the red against their bitter enemy. Port, pretty impressive last week against GWS. I think we saw a bit more of that flow and a bit more 
uh, forward potency. And then Carl Eamon uh, is having a terrific season for the power, and he was outstanding for them. And all the usual suspects, Wines, Boke, Dixon, pretty strong up forward. So encouraging for them in the lead-up to finals. They're going to win this one, and they're going to win it pretty comfortably, I reckon. 42 points, says I. All right, let's turn to the other Saturday night game. 7.40pm at Marvel Stadium sees St Kilda taking on Sydney. I'm not sure why, Finey, but whenever I see those two teams and I see Marvel Stadium, can't help but think of the famous 8-8-56 draw they had, one of the worst games of football ever played in the history of our illustrious sport. But I digress. Uh, Palmerbet, understandably, has Sydney pretty warm favourites for this one. You can get $1.44 head-to-head on the Swans and the Saints paying $2.81. Now, thanks to another Swans win, coupled with Brisbane's shock loss to Hawthorne, says Stats Insider, Sydney now have a 36.4% chance of a top four spot, according to the Futures model. As for the Saints, they enjoyed a 70-11 to hit-out advantage against Carlton. It's still lost by six goals. Here's a stat which helps explain the discrepancy between Jack Steele and the rest of the St Kilda midfield this season. Steele has amassed 69 more touches and 70 more tackles than the next best Saint. And these are numbers which place him in a league of his own in terms of that kind of separation. He also leads the club for inside 50s, clearances and total score involvements. Uh, Sydney been pretty stable in terms of their uh, best 22 lately. What about the Saints finding much change of foot there? Yeah, quite volatile. Dougal Howard, uh, he can't be considered because of a hamstring injury. That might be the season for him. Not a good week to be out, of course, because Sydney have plenty of tall timber firepower with Sam Reid back in the side alongside Buddy Franklin. And uh, we know that they move the ball quickly into that forward line. Heaney's up there. So St Kilda, without Hunter Clark, can't be considered because of concussion. Coming back from a broken jaw, we'll be searching for players to come in. McKenzie. Is he right? Concussion protocol now stretches to a third week. We wait and see. Jack Sinclair, touch and go. He's been probably after Jack Steele, St Kilda's best player this season. He was out last week with a minor hamstring strain and they normally take more than a week. So a bit of a watch there as well. And they will probably have to bring in Claverino for some extra height in the back line. Long could miss out. He's not touching the ball a lot. And Kent should miss out. As for the Swans, only very minor touching around the exes, if anything. Bell, and obviously well-liked by the coach because he doesn't get the ball much, but he stays in the team, could be under threat as he is most weeks, this time from row bottom. The Swans play well at Marvel Stadium. St Kilda play terribly at Marvel Stadium. Odd, really, given that one team is not from the state and the other team that plays terribly there, that's their home ground. But they have been shocking there. I don't really care where the game's played, actually. Sydney are cresting away. They are an exciting unit that many people would love to see forge their way into the top four and have a real crack at a premiership. They may well do so. They won't stumble against the stumbling Saints. Look, St Kilda last week, for me, 
put a seal on the question of whether or not the effort this season has been commendable given the amount of injuries. No, some of those wins paper over what has been a disappointing season because with everything to play for, if that's all they could muster, then count this year as a dead loss for St Kilda. Exact opposite, Sydney. In fact, in this Pride game, which, of course, uh, we recognise the LGBTQ community and it's been going on for a few years, St Kilda need to show some pride. I don't think even with a more sustained effort they can touch Sydney, though. Sydney, for mine, by 31. Yeah, I think uh, the Swans get the job done. I'll tell you what, that was a really high standard uh, victory last week against Essendon, one of the better quality games of the season, high scoring. And uh, the Swans, importantly, I think with finals looming, showed a capacity to really go up through the gears the further the game progressed. Uh, they were down at halftime. They came out and they palpably lifted and uh, went to another level. That is a sign of a really good team, I reckon. They're potent up forward. Uh, they're solid as ever in the midfield. The defence probably uh, underrated, if anything. And I think the venue in this case is really interesting, isn't it? The Swans' uh, record here of late is pretty good. They've won three of their last four at Marvel, and uh, the only visit previously this year was probably their best win of the season over the Western Bulldogs. Uh, They've also got a great record of late over the Saints. They've won 11 of the last 12, including earlier this season, although that one was uh, quite narrow. And the Saints, well, they used to play well at Marvel. I don't know what's happened because they've played 10 games there this season and they've won three of them. Uh, So not a lot to recommend tipping them. Really disappointing against Carlton last week. Um, Still statistically... A chance to finish in the eight. Just having a look where I've got them. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I think the Saints might win one more of their three remaining games. I've got them finishing in 13th spot, actually, on the ladder. Not a great follow-up to a finals period appearance. They don't win this one either. Sydney for mine, pretty comfortably. I'm going for the Swans by 22 points. All right, let's turn our attention to Sunday. 2.10, Sunday afternoon. Not often you see this. Well, in fact, you haven't seen it at all. It is Collingwood playing Hawthorne in Launceston. First uh, visit for the Pies to Hawthorne's second home, where they were terrific last week in a surprise victory over Brisbane. Uh, commanding lead for most of a day, just took the foot off the gas at the end and allowed Brisbane to get closer. That margin, though, not reflective of how good the Hawks were. What are Palmer Betts saying about this one? Well, it's tight, the betting, and they actually have the Magpies, a slight favourite. You can get $1.85 on Collingwood head-to-head in this game. Hawthorne paying $1.95. Stats Insider say these two teams combined to put no less than 23 players with less than 100 games of experience out on the park over the weekend, both producing two of the upsets of the season. Well, I don't know about that in the case of Collingwood and West Coast, the MCG. Of those 23 players, only Hawthorne's James Warple and Jack Scrimshaw amassed at least 25 touches 
or Dublin-born Connor Nash combined for 16 tackles and clearances, which was the game's best return. The Irishman seeming to have found a new home in midfield. Interesting move, that one. While this game's perceived as the hardest to split this round, the Stats Insider game model is actually indicating a narrow Hawthorne win. Uh, what about selection? Will that tip the ledger one way or the other, Finey? Might, might, because Collingwood won't make any changes, I don't think, after their best win under Robert Harvey. Ball movement, excellent. Scoring ramped up. Why change that formula? Hawthorne, likewise, of course, after a great win over Brisbane, would be keen to keep the same lineup, but Bruce can't be considered. Thankfully, no major damage to his knee, but he came off in the win against Brisbane and won't be considered this week in a really interesting game. Now, normally, if Collingwood were going down to Tassie, their supporters would be bluing like nobody's business. We don't go to Tasmania. We don't like playing interstate, blah, blah, blah. But, of course, in this COVID-affected season and with Collingwood well out of the running for the eight, it doesn't really matter. So that is a challenge for them. Never having been down to Tasmania to play in Launceston makes it harder for them to win. Nevertheless, Hawthorne, who for three quarters last week looked anything like the team that probably had to win to make sure they weren't going to get a wooden spoon, responded in the best possible way to the announcement that Clarko is not going on by saying to coach and to football world, we certainly have your back. This week, though, in an interesting encounter, Collingwood, I think, would be buoyed by the way they played. Both of them, even though Clarkson's coaching, have new eyes looking over their team. That's why Connor Nash played in the middle, I think, because that's where Sam Mitchell will play. Big-bodied midfielder. He must be 195 centimetres or close to. That's a good string to Mitchell's bow for next year. I like that. But I preferred the Collingwood movement of the ball and the fact that Hawthorne's inconsistency can be preyed on by a team that had the likes of Steele Sidebottom. By the way, the captaincy is rotating. We know Howe's going to do it and Taylor Adams as well. That's interesting. But I think those players enjoy that prospect. Good to see Jeremy Howe playing and he'll play well again. I'm tipping Collingwood in a really interesting battle by seven points. Well, I've, had, uh, I've been having a good look at Hawthorne this week for uh, a column uh, I wrote actually for Stats Insider, which is up on their website, also on Footyology. But uh, I think some noted media clickbait uh, proprietors' uh, claims that Sam Mitchell is inheriting a mess from Alistair Clarkson are way off beam. I think the Hawks have got plenty out of this year. I think the roll call of young guys who continue to develop is pretty impressive, actually. There's a few not playing now, but uh, they've got a fair bit to look forward to next year. Don't forget also a couple of names, Gunston and Sicily, add a fair bit. But I think what was significant last week was the response of the senior players in that lineup for their coach, Wingard, who copped the rounds of the kitchen for publicly, publicly uh, chewing out teammate Jacob Kaczynski the week before. He had a fantastic game for the Hawks, one of his best. O'Meara was terrific. Uh, Bruce was great. Obviously, they're going to miss him. But Mitchell was great. Warple was great. That whole midfield group 
I think, really responded. It's not often the Hawks these days go into a game with the edge in midfield, but I reckon that might just about be the case for the Pies now, of course, without Scott Pendlebury. Um, ground familiarity, probably more of an issue down here than at other venues. The Pies haven't played there before. The Hawks play there all the time as frequently as last week. On that basis, I'm going for the Hawks to win this one. Only just, I'm going for them by two points. All right, that's the first game on Sunday. Let's move to the next. Marvel Stadium, 3.20 p.m. Sunday afternoon. It is the top of the table, Western Bulldogs up against Essendon, whose finals chances hang by thread and defeat here might just about finish them off all together. This is a game that both Palmer Bet at Stats Insider would expect the Doggies to win reasonably well. The Doggies on Palmer Bet head-to-head odds paying $1.28, Essendon $3.72. Stats Insider said the Bulldogs are in prime position to win their first ever minor premiership, as well as hosting the league's best overall attack for just the second time in their history. As for Essendon, last week was their fifth loss this season by less than 12 points. And they now have a season low, 15.7 chance of playing finals. The Bulldogs have won their last six games against the Bombers, with four of those victories coming by at least 40 points. And uh, it doesn't end there for the Bombers. Finally, some bad news for them on the fitness and injury front as well. Yep, they cannot consider skipper Dyson Heppel. He's out with a thumb injury. And, look, he's had a good season. So, as important as he is, a player that you understand is vital to that midfield that needs all the bulking up they can get. And I speak of Langford, also unavailable. Kyle Langford out with a hamstring injury. In well, Guelphie, he's been unlucky to be out, actually, as you've pointed out in the last couple of weeks. And Braden Ham, who was the sub last week, came on with how long to go? A minute? That was a, <laughs> amazing, wasn't it? That he sort of had to come on at the very end of the game when the game was still alive. He should play from the start this time. How about this in for the doggies, my friend? Adam Trelaw. Look, he's right to go. And I think... It's in his best, in, it, it's in his best interests and the sides to get him as much game time at the top level as possible. I think they can sort of carry him if you do carry Adam Trelaw through a couple of games of regaining fitness. Taylor Duray available as well. Rourke Smith to miss out. Hard to pick out who would be the next person not to get a lifeboat. You know, very difficult. I'm not quite sure which way they're going to go. Scott's been. Very good. They've got a lot, they've got some choices there. I would be very surprised if they drop Garcia. So I'd wait and see. I, I, you know, maybe Garcia unlucky. I don't know. I don't know. But I do know this: that the doggies in recent years have had it over the Bombers. I think you can confirm that shortly. But this season, they certainly should lord it over Essendon. As we approach the finals, they seem on a weekly basis, to be more focused and starting to play the sort of football that could win them a premiership. Do they go with the three tall forwards? Yes, why not? Because Eugle Hagen has fitted seamlessly into that forward line. He's quick. He comes out on a lead. 
and he doesn't impact on the space that would be used by Norton. Bruce roams far and wide. That works well. Maybe the only advantage Essendon has is the improving form of Draper each week. He's a powerhouse, and he'll certainly cause problems for English. But that's where the problems, I think, end for the Doggies. That big midfield against what has been a brave Essendon, and at times brilliant Essendon midfield. Parrish, of course. Look, his season's been wonderful, but the load on him and Merritt has been an onerous one. And without Langford, I can't see them holding a candle to the doggies midfield. Bulldogs for mine by 31 points. Yeah, I think it's going to be pretty comfortable, this one. Uh, in the uh, strange file about these two teams, uh, they don't play very often. In fact, this will be their seventh meeting in the last seven seasons. Uh, the Bulldogs have won, as Stats Insider told us, the past six, which means Essendon's last win over the Western Bulldogs came all the way back in 2014. And as you alluded to, Finey, uh, the margins have been healthy, to say the least. The margins of victory in those half dozen wins, 87 points, 40, 30, 21, 104 and 42. Uh, that is a very comfortable margin indeed. On average, uh, I think this one is going to be around the same mark. Uh, Langford, a major loss for the Dons. You're right, the load is starting to show on Parish, particularly Merrick, just outstanding last week. So he's soldiering on. But uh, the Bombers have got a few who are tiring visibly. Nick Cox has really laboured through the second half of this season. Uh, the attacks looking as threadbare as usual in the defence. And what's going on with James Stewart, but he is really, really struggling. Might be time to fling him forward in desperation, I suspect. Um, yeah, this is where it pretty much officially ends for the Bombers in what nonetheless has been a pretty good season. They're not going to get the points here. The Doggies have got bigger stakes at play. And to that end, they are going to build a bit more confidence and a bit more form with a 34-point victory. Uh, we have one game left on Sunday. Let's talk about that. Two games in Perth to close out round 21. Uh, the first of them is on Sunday evening. It is 5.10pm Eastern Standard Time. So afternoon in Perth, 3.10, of course. It sees Fremantle taking on Brisbane. And this is a game in which Palmerbet have the visitors... Reasonably warm favourites, $1.53 the Lions paying head-to-head. -head. And for Fremantle, you can get $2.52 on them, despite the fact the game is on their home deck. Stats Insider say the Dockers are in the top eight for just the fourth time over the AFL's last 46 rounds and have a 36% chance of staying there according to the futures model. Speaking of which, the Lions have just a 10.9% chance of making the top four for a third straight season, having lost three of their last four games with all three defeats coming to teams not currently in the top eight. That is a major worry. Can they turn it around here and arrest this damaging slide? Uh, anyone coming back, they can count on Finey and... The Dockers, they are without some serious names. Any of them, any sort of chance to come back? Uh, the only sort of big name coming back in the game is Alex Pierce, 
and he's an important player for the Dockers. Good defender. He'll return. I imagine Blakely will come in for Banfield, who, of course, last week suffered an injury. That concussion is uh, means he can't play. It's a pretty sickening blow. He probably to be joined on the sidelines uh, with Pierce coming in. Tobe Watson, uh, the likely victim there, the omission. As for their opponents, Brisbane, surprisingly, they dropped Devin Robertson last week. I think he's a starter in that team. Certainly the side that got beaten by Hawthorne looked less without him. Jared Berry, he struggled in and out of the team regularly. I wouldn't be surprised if he looks farther afield than Brisbane next season to try and reignite his AFL career. Brisbane, favourites in this game? Mm, Not for mine. They were poor last week, losing to Hawthorne. Poor in the first half against Gold Coast. Yes, they found their best selves in the second half, but that is not easy to do far away from home against Frio if they get behind, as Richmond saw last week. Home crowd, much to play for. Yes, no Fife, no Walters, no problems last week. Tabiner's return was timely with no lob, and he played very well. Kicked a great goal in that second quarter. Of course, the heroics were by Schultz. He knows plenty, not nothing. And I don't think that there's going to be much joy for Brisbane either. I'm tipping the Fremantle, the home team, by 19 points. Yeah, it's very interesting. Um, that wasn't Hogan's Heroes, was it? That was, uh, what was that show? You know, that um, was from Laughing. Laughing, that's what I was thinking of, yeah. Interesting, but stupid. Yeah. Well, I could have ended with that. I just thought I'd spare you feelings. Um, <laughs> does, that mean, does that mean you're tipping Brisbane? It does. Uh, <laughs> obviously, with plenty of reservation, though, because they ain't in great form. Interesting, though, they do have a pretty decent recent record over the Dockers. They've won four of the last five. They only played twice at Optus Stadium previously, uh, both against Frio the first time a very comfortable 10-goal win in 2018. The second time, a pretty epic game lost by a point. You remember Michael Walters uh, kicking one late, uh, a score late for the Dockers, which got them over the line. Probably little relevance, to be perfectly honest, and that even that game now more than two years ago. But uh, Brisbane... They've got to stop themselves going into freefall here. Uh, their top four chances looking pretty ordinary at this stage. But to have any hope, they absolutely have to win this game. Uh, similar story for Frio, though, if they're going to maintain that spot in the eight because they have got a derby against West Coast after this and a road trip to Melbourne to play your Saints. So given their previous record on the road, no easy assignment there. Look, they were pretty uh, impressive in that win over Richmond last week, aside like their opponent from the kicking, which was absolutely diabolical. But the effort was there and uh, they certainly hung on and recorded a great win uh, against adversity because the names missing are considerable for them. This is what I think might be the difference. Look, Brisbane's talent, not in dispute. Their application and execution has been found wanting. They simply must get it back this week. I'm backing in Chris Fagan 
to give his side a bit of an extra zip this week. I think the ground might suit them. I think they're desperate for a win. I think they're going to get it. I don't think they're going to get it by much, but I'm going for Brisbane to win this one by six points. And the final game of round 21 is on Monday evening. Well, we say it every week, COVID has played havoc with the 2021 fixture and this game and other consequence of that being pushed back to Monday evening. It's a late one too, 8.10pm Eastern Standard Time, of course, 6.10 in Perth. It sees West Coast taking on Melbourne. Uh, the Demons getting a little bit of confidence back last week in beating up on Gold Coast and the Eagles delivering another shocker in Melbourne, this time against Collingwood. Uh, Probably largely as a result of that insipid effort, they will go in outsiders, even at home. Melbourne, say Palmerbet, are $1.43 favourite head-to-head in this game. And the Eagles, $2.85. What does Stats Insider say? Well, the Eagles have the sixth worst defence in the league and are allowing opponents to generate a scoring shot on 44% of their entries, which is a number only North Melbourne is performing worse in. Unfortunately for West Coast, they're coming up against a Melbourne attack that's finally starting to click. 128 points was their best score of the year and just the second time they've mustered at least 30 scoring shots in a game this year. Look, we talk about West Coast in Perth as being one of the toughest assignments in football. Finey, they'll still need all hands on deck. Melbourne, of course, we know Jack Viney missing through suspension. Will they get anyone else into that lineup? And what are the Eagles doing selection-wise? I reckon Nathan Jones might be recalled. Played very well in the VFL last week. And 29 disposals and a goal. He looked good. He looked fresh, ready to go. He is like for like. And I wouldn't be surprised if he forces his way back in on the eve of the finals. That'd be a good effort. As for the West Coast Eagles, Barras will come back in the side. Now, Shuey is touch and go. Gee, they should err on the side of caution, shouldn't they? Given how iffy his hamstring has been this season and how... Any time that he has not been 101% right, he has tweaked it again. If he comes into the side, then uh, likely Xavier O'Neill, who's been in and out of that team throughout the season to miss out, Harry Edwards to miss out for Barras. West Coast, terrible last week. Melbourne, excellent. But such is the nature of this competition and West Coast Eagles that take them back home, put them in front of a crowd, and you might just get a different result. Now, the West Coast Eagles, for mine, are the disappointment of the season, notwithstanding St Kilda's poor efforts, etc. But for a team to have been where they were at the halfway point, which is right in the mix for top four, to have played some of the football they have in the second half of the season is simply unacceptable. Melbourne, on the other hand, were looking for some firepower. They seem to have it now with Ben Brown. That is going to be the way to go. Jackson and he kicked four each last week where the pickings were easy. And so you've got Melbourne with firepower working. 
West Coast, no. Darling doesn't get enough of the ball. And the much vaunted Oscar Allen has been quiet now for about eight weeks. So everything points to the Demons. I'm tipping West Coast by five points. That's how crazy football can be and has been this year. Yeah, look, it's tempting. Uh, I've shown a lot of faith in the Eagles, I reckon, over the course of what has been a pretty ordinary season, but uh, just about been extinguished now, even at home. Uh, it is tempting, though, I've got to say, they have a, a long history of dominance over Melbourne. In fact, the Eagles have won 13 of the last 15 encounters between these two sides and Melbourne. Um, they have played three games at Optus Stadium and lost them all, uh, all against the Eagles. In fact, sorry, that is not correct. Four games and they have lost three of them. The last three by 27 points, 16 points and 66 points. That, of course, was that ill-fated 2018 preliminary final. I reckon they win this one, though. They need to win to keep uh, chances of top two alive and certainly to stay uh, comfortable in the top four. West Coast, I think they're still going to limp into the eight, whatever happens in this game. Um, they have a little bit of a buffer there. Would need to win either the Derby or Derby the following week against the Dockers or beat Brisbane in the last game if they drop this one. I think they're going to drop this one. I think Melbourne uh, really got a bit of that uh, flow and outside stuff that had gone missing from its game in recent times back against the Suns. Uh, not the only time a team has used the Suns as a uh, confident shaping tool. Uh, I think it started to come back for the Demons in that game. I think the ground will suit them again. And uh, I think they can reverse a considerable run of outs against the Eagles and win this one. Don't have enough faith in them to do it comfortably, but I think they are good enough to win this game by 16 points. So uh, we differ on, I think, three tips this round, finally. Let's see if you can make up a little bit of that yawning gap between us in the total tipping amounts. <sighs> Sorry, I'm yawning because you're boring me by bringing that up every week. Oh, well, it's just part of the shtick. And another part of the shtick is one of the great segments in football podcasting history where we relive some of the greatest moments in football history. And we're going to do it again this week. Play the music. <laughs> Footy flashbacks. Okay, finally, I'm continuing what has become a uh, well-worn device, but I like it, of going to a game played between two sides who are, in fact, playing this week. And any number of examples I could have gone with, but one which stood out like the dog's proverbials to me was Hawthorne and Collingwood. They've had some mighty clashes over the years. Could have gone way back to 1977 and that famous second semi-final where the Pies prevailed, but uh, tragically for their flag chances, lost Phil Carmen to suspension. But instead, I went more recently in finals history, back to 2011, 
the preliminary final between the Pies and the Hawks. Do you remember that one, Finey? I certainly do. A grandstand finish. It certainly was. And we're going to be treated to that grandstand finish right now. Blair, he's been important, Blair. Swan smothered off the boot, ricochets to Birchall. Birchall gives the hand pass to Suckling. Suckling, he, such a good kick, normally uses the ball well again. Schoenmakers gets it from Mitchell. Probing kick inside the ball at 50. Here comes Bunny. Wheels around. Gathers the football. Oh, oh, yeah. oh he's kicked oh, He's kicked the miracle. <laughs> he's put it through with the outside of the boot, running to the wrong pocket. <laughs> oh, can you believe that? Said he had to kick a goal. Yeah, he, he, he at the moment is the Hawthorne former. They're all fatigued. Karopolo's doing a really good job to try and lock it in. But when, when it's a one-on-one contest between Franklin and Tarrant, that's, but that is an unbelievable finish. Did the ball got to go left and <laughs> just drifted right? Well, we're calling cards. What a finish. The calling cards, man, this is greatness. Oh. And that is greatness in a preliminary final. Oh. Just got to hang on. Got to hang on. Stick to what they do best here, the Hawks. This is real nerve. Mr. September 8. Absolutely. 4.51 goals. That's in his best three ever, you'd reckon. Oh, yeah. And what a moment. Hawthorne back in front. Burgoyne. Been really good. Building four. Hodge. Bateman. Caught up. Gee, looked high. Just had to kick it. He's made a few errors on that centre wing through fatigue in the last quarter. Cloak's been yeah. very, very good. Bangs it high. Doors. <laughs> no free kick. Doors again. Was it in the back? Hawthorne haven't got it out yet. Suckling off the ground. Cloak's got it. Two kicks from goal. Next goal wins, you'd reckon. Cloak bangs it. Shawnees drops it. Dawes gets it back. Still in dispute. That ball not coming out. And, <laughs> oh, Shawnees. Oh, poor kid. Oh. Oh, they'd be the nerves would be jangling. They're jangling in the stands and they're jangling out on the field. Usually the players are the least nervous of anyone in the stadium. Well, now it's showing. It was so cool earlier. The stakes so high. Ball frozen on the boots. And like swung before him, he's kicked a magnificent goal out of that pocket. You know, that, those stoppages have been dangerous. For Collingwood again, it's the goal line Shepherd. At least at this stage, this time I think the Collingwood player was in front, just pushed back. You're allowed to do that. Inside the last minute, Michael Malthouse still could be coaching his last game. Who knows? At least for the Magpies, Swan has other ideas. Lewis, brilliant. Rioli's got the footy. Rioli run down from behind, holding the ball. And Collingwood, I think, from here can run down the clock. Oh, he just had no one forward, Rioli, so he had to try and hold on to wait to see if someone released. But that's what Thomas does so well, the chase down tackle from behind. Remember his tackle on White Cross earlier in this match when he created a goal at the other end. So Collingwood, who haven't defended a premiership for 75 years. It's been 75 years since they won a flag and then went into the grand final the next year. 16 contested possessions for Dale Thomas out of his 29 tackles. It's the best match of 2011 so far, and Collingwood win. 
well, gee, not hard to remember that finish, I guess, when you hear it. And Luke Ball, heroics. Well done, Lukey. Loved you when you were a saint and certainly just well done on getting a premiership at Collingwood. you got to feel for showmakers, Rowan. He was sort of the carried a bit of the, the weight of disappointment there for a while at Hawthorne, didn't he? Oh, it was an easy mark, no doubt. But, uh, look, he went on to uh, play uh, in a Hawthorne flag at least and uh, quite a, a loved figure by the time he finished up with the Hawks. Amazing scenes also. Of course, the Buddy goal, we don't need to describe that again. Just another one in Buddy's catalogue of incredible goals. But uh, probably the most amazing scene out of the post or the aftermath of this game was the sight of Mick Malthouse sitting in the Collingwood coach's box, weeping, overcome with emotion. Um, and uh, I guess, presumably, because he didn't know whether that was in fact going to be his last game as Collingwood coach in doubt until the final seconds. And of course, the handover to Nathan Buckley due at the end of the season. Bit of a uh, ominous note about it, though. The Pies really had to pull out something special to win that went into the grand final against Geelong last uh, the following week, having lost only two games to the year, but those two games both notably against the Cats. And that would become three with Geelong winning the grand final. So uh, Collingwood's last victory of 2011, but an epic finals contest vividly remembered by fans of both teams. All right, what have you got for us this week, Finey? Well, interestingly, I've got a Hawthorne game as well. But my interest was spiked by your claim last week. And you made a very good case to have very good reason to think that that Geelong North Melbourne game, the preliminary final, was the best game that you've ever seen. Yeah, now, well, it was. So I thought, I can't top it, but I can, if memory served me correctly, find a game that might have been more star-studded. And, of course, I turned to Gary Ablett, the hero, really, of that famous game at the very end, to one of his first games in his career when he played for Hawthorne. And he was very good that day in a game in 1982, round five, when Hawthorne and Richmond both sat atop the league ladder. They were one and two coming into the game. And it was a ripper meeting at Princess Park. Yeah, it was a good close game, but of greater interest was the quality of players that lined up for both teams. So I've got a few highlights from the second quarter and then some towards the end of the game where it's finally decided. And just keep an ear out, folks, for some of the names you're going to hear in the highlights package. Have a listen to this. Strong football by Kelvin Moore, but the kick goes straight to Brian Wood. He couldn't take it cleanly. Green goes in for Hawthorne. He got pushed down by Wood. Rioli's there. Got around beautifully. Spins out of trouble. Shot it out to Emmett Dunn. Emmett Dunn's kick coming in toward the goal square. They all set themselves. Up they fly. Byrne can't take the mark. It's on the turf. It's been forced through. Whoops, a bit of strong work by Welsh. A free kicks at the umpire to Polkinghorne. Umpire called, as you saw, he said he was tripped. Well, Polkinghorne taking a real risk. Coming across the ground. Shocking football. Richmond, four nines, 
score being changed to show that's 33 points. Hawthorne, 5-7-37. I'm astounded, Jack. <laughs> and Bobby can't believe what he's just seen. Back to the centre with umpire Bryant. Big Mike Byrne. Got the hook out. Punched on again. Chance for Mew. He lets his teammate Ayres get it. He shot a hand pass out now and through leverage to Wallace. Hawthorne go forward. Into the forward pocket. A well-placed kick. I don't know whether that's the right place to be, though, Bob. In no, that I pocket. would have been inclined to have a couple of bounces, Jack, because uh, he had the, the, the chance to take the risk. And uh, from there, he's really made it hard for Gary Ablett to have any chance of a score. He might get a point, but if he can kick a goal from there, it'll be miraculous. Well, he's going to take a long kick. Not bad. That's a miraculous goal, I think. <laughs> Bobby, how was that one? <laughs> Good Great goal. goal. Good Great goal. goal. Credit where it's due, but it was uh, still for mine in the wrong place. So I agree with you entirely. <laughs> but Hawthorne, 6 7 43, 10 points in front of Richmond, 4 9 33. It's on Hawthorne's half forward flank on the outer side of the ground with the throne will take place. Hawthorne in front by 11 points. This could be a real boil over today because Richmond would be favourite to take the game out. Yes, and against any other side, Jack, you would uh, say that at this stage Hawthorne would be a lay down Mazeb. They're playing Richmond and uh, anything can happen against a side like oh. Richmond. But the bad bounce for Martello. A chance now, but Martello kicks it off the ground. Good play. Russell Green trying to gather it in. He's under pressure from Martello. Still keeps at it. Malthouse took the ball away. We then see Martello come back again, try to tap the ball forward, almost thrown up. And the pushing the back goes away of Russell Green. So because he was first to the ball and making the play, Green gets the chance of putting the ball forward. And if he can goal from here, it would seal the game. Well, it'll be out about 40 metres, I would think. And the breeze right behind him. So he's trying to line this up now. He wants to score. He wants a goal, of course. No one on the mark. Here comes Green now. 40 metres out from goal. Gone for the short pass. <laughs> He's filled them all. He shot a short pass in. Everyone thought he'd go. There's Wallace coming off the ground now for Ali DeWald. But he shot a short pass out to Matthews. Good thinking. I was just thinking, Jack, of all the players believing their own on the forward line. <laughs> Lee Matthews with three on the board. The kick from Matthews. It looks like four. And the goal umpire indicates four. So Hawthorne, 13-21 to 10-22. A lead of... Is it Jack? 17 points. Uh, that is fascinating, isn't it? Um, we're, we're sort of lucky that uh, there is, at least on YouTube, uh, Gary Ablett Sr.'s Hawthorne career preserved in some form. And what about that goal too? Uh, the great Bobby Skilton, of course, doing special comments and giving him zero chance of kicking that one and then uh, pointed out to him that he did, in fact, kick it. And Bobby's response was, still wasn't the right option to have taken to pass to Ablett, but uh, his incredible skill on display there. Interesting season, this one, of course. Uh, Richmond, pretty much flag favourite all year, the dominant team, but uh, couldn't get the job done. Carlton, of course, bombing up, winning their second flag in a row and beating Hawthorne in that season's preliminary final, the Blues, to face off against the Tigers. So two of the best three sides of 1982 playing on this day in a really... High-quality game, Fonny, and I've got to say, you're spot on in terms of the roll call of uh, VFL superstardom. Uh, doesn't get a lot better than this game, does it? Give us the uh, the catalogue of superstars. Well, in the discussion of who's the greatest player ever, 
notwithstanding that we wait to see what Dustin Martin ends his career on in terms of achievements, I think a lot of the discussion has always been around Gary Ablett Senior and Lee Matthews. Well, they both lined up for Hawthorne on this day and they really were the match winners. On the other hand, you've got the two men whose durability until, of course, joined by Brent Harvey and Dustin Fletcher and most latterly Sean Burgoyne, stood head and shoulders above any other players in the competition. The two great 400 gamers, Kevin Bartlett towards the end of his career. But I tell you, Michael Tuck at the height of his powers and he kicks. This game is on in full, by the way, on YouTube. If anybody goes back and wants to watch it, you can see the entire game. Michael Tuck kicks a goal in this game to beat the band and plays a brilliant game. Then you throw in defenders like Gary Ayres, Mew and Kelvin Moore. So you've got Gary Ayres starting his career, but alongside the great Kelvin Moore, Gary Buccanara up front for Hawthorne, the wonderful Morris Rioli for Richmond, and he produces some magic in this match. Jim Jess is brilliant, David Cloak. And then you've got Richmond line up with two 100 goal kickers in, their, in a season in their forward line. Michael Roach and Taylor, who rarely played together, but on this occasion, BT lined up next to Michael Roach. So you've got some of the great personalities of the game, some of the great figures. Mick Malthouse, previously mentioned, of course, coaching Collingwood in that famous preliminary in 2011. He was in the back pocket for the Tigers. The roll call goes on. It's such an interesting game to watch, Rowan. Yeah, no, good work. It's uh, it's one of those games easily forgotten, but you're quite right, almost a, an important uh, historical document and, and an appropriately weighty note on which to finish the, this podcast. Thanks for your company. Uh, you can catch us, of course, on Footyology Final Sour on Friday evening after the Geelong GWS game from about 10.45 live on Facebook and Twitter. Uh, we will back to do our usual round review uh, on Sunday evening. And yes, that will be before Monday night's West Coast Melbourne game. But uh, we have a regular time slot. Don't worry, Demon and Eagles fans will wrap up your game as well in the midweek podcast. But join us as usual Sunday evening for the round review this podcast always proudly brought to you by Palmerbet. Play the punting advantage this footy season. Always remember to gamble responsibly. And what about our other wonderful sponsors, Finey? A cavalcade of stars in that Richmond Hawthorne game and in our list of sponsors, Glittering, 144 Bridport Street, Albert Park, Melbourne's much-loved and favourite hamburger is from Andrews. And then Nick Spartels on the team at West Point Properties, they're proud sponsors of this program because they associate themselves with quality and that's what they say we are. And we say it straight back at you, boys. Love the relationship, West Point Properties. And don't forget Stats Insider also, a sports and data-driven industry leader providing model projections and analysis to more than 15 sports across the world. Also home to some of Australia's best independent sports writing and analysis. Everything free to use. Check them out at statsinsider.com.au and give them a follow on Twitter at Stats Insider. You can support us too on the supporter page wherever you're listening to this podcast or 
become an official footyology patron via Patreon. And the links to that are all up over the footyology website, footyology.com.au. We're very grateful for your loyal support. You've been outstanding and I'm sure will continue to be so. And we'll be continuing to deliver for you on a regular basis. Thanks for your company. Good luck to your team this week. Uh, we'll speak to you when this round's all done and dusted. Yeah.